0: Welcome to Behavior Babes podcast presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Christine Almeida. Christine, are you there? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Could you start off with an introduction for our listeners, please? Uh, yeah,
1: I um, I am a BCBA in a public school on um, a preschool outside Boston. And I'm a Simmons graduate. Go Simmons.
0: Go Simmons, yeah. Um, well, that kind of struck me when you were out here for the Hava conference, our Hawaii Association conference last year as a speaker. One of the things you had said was your mentor, a professor, and you had mentioned Susan Ainsley, and I thought, no wonder I feel such a connection. <laughs> an incredible guide, uh, mentor resource model for everyone. So in your current um, district, you're in Newton Public Schools, what is your role there and um, in, in supporting the district with ABA?
1: So I work in the preschool, and it's a pretty diverse role. Uh, sometimes I think that they don't quite know what I do, Um because i do a lot of things i go out to private schools when a child is not doing well in a private school and look at them we might be able to send we actually created a position um that uh a behavior it's called a behavior interventionist um it's uh katie o'reilly who loves to listen to your podcast gm she goes out. She has a master's in special education. and She's also taken all the coursework for a BCBA. She goes out to the private preschools to see if she can model how those teachers should work with a student to see if maybe we can keep that student in a private preschool rather than having them come to our program. Um, and that's been a great step forward because a lot of the private preschool teachers really don't know how to work with children, um, and we're getting more children who are dysregulated and just have some challenging behavior for whatever reason, but they don't really meet the disability category of an IEP. Like, what would we put down for the disability category? So um, it's really kind of cool that she's able to do that, go out and work with these private preschool teachers. Preschool isn't federally mandated, and I think a lot of people forget that, that Anybody can open up a preschool and say like, yeah, hey, we opened up a preschool, and um, and like, yeah, I'm a preschool teacher, but they actually have no training, they have no idea about behavior management, no idea about the types of kids that they're getting, and the types of kids that may be enrolled in their preschool may have significant needs. They also may, in Massachusetts, um, depending on your state and the insurance, the autism insurance laws, they may actually be a student on the spectrum that may, through their insurance, be funding like one-to-one in a private appraisal. So we go out and we look at that, but it's not necessarily the most efficient way for your student to get um, ABA services because you're a visitor in their country. So as opposed to when you're in the public school in an early childhood center where we all work as a team, speech and language, occupational therapist, special educator, I can go in the classroom and say, hey, you know what, you're doing free play. And um, so personally I hate free play. I love choice time. So I can say, like, look, we need, like, some visuals. They need to be able to, like, have a board that they know what they're peers favorite activities are and that way they can initiate like oh i know that sarah likes legos so i'm going to ask sarah to play legos so we need a board for her and that's going to happen and i want you to limit your choice time to just 20 minutes and the classroom teacher says great we can do that if you're working in a private preschool with insurance money you can't do that you're a visitor in their country and you're going by their rules and their rules might be like well hey it's a preschool slash daycare. We're open from seven in the morning until six at night, and um, and it's free play all day. And um, if you want to like pull your student to the side and do some discrete trial or whatever, go ahead. But um, we're not we're not changing anything. And um, so it can be a way to get ABA services, but it may not be the best way to do it. So I happen to be a real big believer
0: in public schools. It's just that public schools need to do it better. <laughs> that's, that's a great simple statement, right? Like I too believe in public schools and my background being in elementary education and, you know, having worked in Massachusetts, there are so many wonderful examples. Um, and it works when you see teams who are doing it the best. And we can always be doing things Better, um, But I also think it's really interesting when we think about regional benefits and needs, strengths, programs. Even in Massachusetts, it's very different in Newton than it might be in Cambridge, than it might be out in Attleboro, right? Oh, or, yeah. <laughs> so you're going to see those variations. and Oh, um, definitely. And the public school system that you're working in is, you know, known as one of the top-rated school systems in the United States. And yet, of course, there's always really – Um, room for growth. But what what I really like about our conversations, Christine, and what you share is all of the options and opportunities you see and then what you create. Can you talk to us about some of the programs or systems that you've created internally for the students who do qualify for an IEP? Well, so one of the things, and Susan taught us this, is that you start with your perfect program
1: and then you work backwards. So when you see a student, and what their needs are, you start with a perfect program, and then you work backwards. And, you know, Alan Bloom taught this over at Simmons, Susan Ainsley taught us this, that you can't say we don't have that, which is funny because I hear that from a lot of school districts, what they say is like, well, we don't offer that, or we don't have that. So when I get a student, and I look at the student, and I've said this before, like what this student needs is he needs to start with his own classroom, and then we start to build up inclusion, but right now he needs his own classroom and we need to just grit. And, and the school will say, like, well, we don't have an empty classroom to give you. I'm like, well, that's what he needs. So you start with the perfect program and then you work your way backwards. So what do we have? And that's part of the reason why I like doing behavior analysis in the public school is because I feel like it's almost like its most pure form. It's not like because I have worked um, in a private setting before, and that's sort of like the land of milk and honey. It's like you want something, you get it. Um, You ask for something, you get it. But in a public school, it's sort of like, well, okay, you're saying you want your own classroom, um, and that's the only way the student will be successful. Would this option work? Um, Well, okay, let's see. And you kind of make your work your way backward. Okay, so we're going to have to make do with this, and let's see how we can make, like, I'm starting from here at the perfect program. This is the perfect program I've designed in my head, and this is what the student needs. And I might not be able to get that, but let's get as close to that as possible um, so that the student can make the type of progress that I would like the student to make. So um, even though we've designed, like, several levels of ABA, we've created three different levels of ABA, we still tweak it at all sorts of possible Possible way. So we've designed um, sort of the bottom rung on the ladder is discrete trial. Um, where we might do some direct instruction. We might do discrete trial. Um, and as the student begins to make progress, the second rung of that ladder is what um, the staff named fun group. And fun group is now you've gotten these skills, but maybe you're only doing it with an adult, and that's not really real world or really helpful. So we have the students in a group of four with two behavior therapists running it, but now we want them to direct it all toward a peer. And then the third rung of that is now we need to fine-tune it. They're asking for things from a peer but maybe they're not working on that listener behavior. So the last rung of the ladder is, um, and the students actually named it themselves, um, is the super connector group. And we want them making connections and the listener behavior and noticing like, oh, I know that you like this. I like that too. That's the connection we have. And that's what true friendship is based on. And, um, And so we work our way up that rung of ladder and they move to different groups. But we also embed things like if we... Feel like a student maybe has a learning disability brewing. Um, We've also implemented um, RDI, um, sorry RTI, response to instruction, sort of on the um, during choice time. I did it in one classroom, and it took off so well that now all the other teachers are asking for it. That one of the choices during choice time is um, direct instruction, and we target typical kids and i'm putting typical kids in quotes these are kids that we're concerned about but may not be on an IAP. um we may suspect that there's possibly a learning disability brewing and we put them with a behavior therapist in a group of two or three and we also may have one of our own students in there who may be needing to learn to um, learn in a in group instruction because maybe they can do discrete trial one-to-one, but they're not yet generalizing it to learning in a group. And so now one of the choices at Choice Time is group instruct is uh, direct instruction, or as um, one of the BCBs in the district calls it, big DI, and um, and we go through a big DI group. It's gone over so well that now some of the SPED teachers are running DI groups, and we have it running in almost all of our classrooms. And sometimes we have two groups of DI going um, because we have so many people that are interested in it and so many kids that are interested in it, which is great because if it's working and DI is doing what it's supposed to do, which is it's supposed to be closing the achievement gap, then these are kids that might not need to be on an IEP come first grade or second grade. Um, So it's a lot of different ways that we can not only um, help the students out but it also makes people really who when i first came into the preschool nobody wanted to have aba there now these teachers not only want aba in all their classrooms they're doing it they're running di themselves and they always tell me they have another candidate for di or they have a student for one of the aba groups they're actually actively seeking us out and and that's such a dramatic change from when I first arrived in Newton and we were kind of in the back hole and nobody wanted to know anything about us. Um, but it's really gratifying to see. And it's really gratifying to see kids who were sort of kind of struggling with kind of basic languagey type concepts make such dramatic gains with direct instruction.
0: I think some of the really important things that you said that resonated with me was shifting in that, that attitude of like this is not something I want to, hey, look what I'm doing now. And I think people who are consulting or who work with teams of people over time sometimes really get to see that evolution and attitude. Um, but how, how do you go about cultivating that, or what are some of the strategies that you do to help change that perspective of the people around you? Oh, it was hard.
1: So when I first came to Newton, I had come from – in Southern California, I worked at Lovas, and then um, in Massachusetts, I worked um, at New England Center for Children. And both places are very much like ABA is king, and, of course, everybody loves you, and any reinforcer you want to use, of course you can use it. And and then I came to Newton, and it was very different where, um, like, I had one child who was only allowed to eat – uh, his mother had him on a diet for whatever reason. He was only allowed to eat mango and lamb and peas, and that was it. And um, and there were suddenly all these restrictions put on me, and that first year was incredibly difficult for me. Um, and suddenly nobody really wanted to know, like, what I thought, And I, and I was really kind of ostracized. And ABA was sort of in the back corner, and nobody wanted to know anything about it. They, and I heard later that people were upset and angry that I was even hired. And, um, and then um, it was actually Dan who was consulting at that time, um, my husband, Dan Almeda, Um he, he was the consultant to the program at the time, and he said, after that first year, I had to get my feet wet, and we were just focusing on just getting the kids assessed and just surviving. He said, pick, I, the next year, I was like, I want to get into inclusion. He said, pick one classroom, and it's just about shaping. And I would go into the classroom, and my first thought would be like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I want to change everything. He's like, find one thing that you like and just cultivate that relationship. And it's all shaping. It's all just shaping. And I formed a relationship with a teacher, and I would tell her how much I really loved how she did. I don't even remember what it was. Um, and... To this day, the two of us have a very, very good relationship. And then we started to um, we started to support students in her classroom, and started to work in that classroom. And then it jumped over to another classroom, and then another classroom. And then once the teacher saw that we weren't trying to take over the classroom, that we could be an asset to the classroom. And I say we because it's really a team, and we take it as a team approach. Everybody in ABA. I have had the same staff for years, and everything that we do, we always kind of joke that we share our brain. We all take everything as this team approach, um, and we kind of slowly went in one classroom at a time. And pretty soon, it was the staff, it was the, it was the other teachers that were kind of t- spreading the word and saying like, "Why don't you go ask Christine? Why don't you go ask Christine and her staff?" And um, and that was the way that it went. Initially, very very frustrating, and um, and I think. That first year, it would have been really easy to give up um, if I wouldn't have had the support of um, Dan coming in and telling me it's it'll be okay, it'll be okay. Just keep keep focusing on the things that are going well and and it's it's conditioning yourself as a reinforcer. Um, so that ended up working really well. The thing that's amazing to me now um, is hearing. First of all, the teachers use words that I taught them they're using them now constantly um they're using they're using behavioral terms all the time um and it just it just happens and every now and then i I catch myself like listening to them thinking like oh my gosh like 10 years ago this would have never happened the other thing that's amazing is that i remember giving a a training in data collection and the teachers were like openly sort of like this is never gonna there's no way we can take data Every teacher has a data sheet now, and they take data on their own objectives. And they take, like, it's, it is, like, straight up. I, I look at their data sheets now, and I'm like, this data sheet is amazing. Like, you are straight up taking data on. And we used to do it for them and kind of offer as a, like, look, we can do, um, we can take some data collection on some of your IEP objectives as a way to kind of, like, look, we're going to condition ourselves as a reinforcer. We'll take data on some of your IEP objectives. Now they're doing it, and they're finding that their progress notes are easier to write because they actually have hard black-and-white data to support it.
0: So it's just really nice to see. So you go in, you say, look, I can help, but it's more important to show that you can help. And then when people see that help, they say, hey, I need help. And then after a while, they realize they don't really need that much help because they've really acquired a lot of that, and you're there as the support. And I think that goes along with everything, not just conditioning yourself as reinforcer, but then fading and thinning ourselves out when not needed, right? So that we can kind of get on to the next big thing. Um, and as you're mentioning, there's some different um, needs and populations kind of growing, and you are sharing with me that your um, your area of expertise or your scope or your lane is sort of expanding. Um, what is that kind of looking like and 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 how might that shape kind of the next directions of the support or the programs you guys have currently?
1: It is changing it's i was I was telling you that we're getting more and I think anybody in early childhood education can um, can relate to this we're getting more these challenging students and dysregulated students, and they don't really qualify I, there's sort of a caveat there. They don't really qualify for an IEP in that like what disability do they have? It just sort of falls under behavior. They're not making it in a preschool. They've gotten kicked out of one, two, three preschools, but um but they're not like how how do you qualify them for an IEP? So having this behavior interventionist position where we can go out and show other teachers how to work with these students is great, but sometimes these students, it's reached past that point where maybe now we're talking about a mental health issue or now we're talking about a psychiatric issue. And um, for one student in particular, uh, it was so far out of the realm of, of even what's just so far out of my experience and I was talking to the director, and I said, so, is, is this what's going to fall in my lane now? Because i got to tell you, I, I have a lane, and I like to stay in that lane. And ethically, I really do have to stay in my lane. And, and she said, well, you know, your lane used to just be ASD, and then it got a little bit wider to include these kids that are now dysregulated and, you know, are potentially ADHD. So it, it's been getting wider over the years. So I think you know these kids are going to be on your radar, and and there is this level of discomfort because I don't want to do something that I don't feel comfortable with that I'm not trying to do. I don't have experience with this type of thing, but at the same time, do I need to be aware that these kids are coming down the road and there's nobody that's out there for these kids or there's very few people that um, work with them. They get kicked out of preschools. Um, There's very few people that are willing to work with these kids, and then when they come to our preschool, someone will staff them with a behavior therapist, and somebody has to oversee that behavior therapist. Then it's sort of up to me then to become qualified or trained or get experience in working with these children. It's not to say that this is going to become my lane that whether I like it or not, my lane is getting wider. And That's part of the virtue of like, that's part of the issue of when you work in a public school, sometimes things are put in your lane and, you know, it, you are going to have to get trained in how to work with children. You can't just say like, well, um, sorry, but people are going to get hurt. And I think that's, that's where we're having issues and I'm not, super thrilled about it and i think there will have to be a time when i'm like this is just again not my lane luckily there is a school psychologist there are social workers i know what i can do i know what i can't do and i don't feel comfortable doing um but that doesn't mean that i'm not going to be seeking actively out other help to help me widen my lane somewhat
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is a challenge, especially in public schools, because we're there and we're charged with educating everybody who comes through our doors, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's it's situations where a private school may say, hey, that doesn't really fit here or our teachers aren't equipped to do that. They can make those determinations, and that's not a luxury. And sometimes that's the benefit. I think the beauty of a public school is that you have to get real inventive and creative, but it is going to require that um, expansion of competence, building that network, seeking out additional you know, professional development. And it's comforting to hear you share that with listeners because I think people who are um, new to the field may have the impression that once you've been in the field for a while, you kind of figure things out. And sure, you get into routines and habits and you find what works, but we're also needing to continue to grow and expand and develop our own competence. Like we are just never done with that. Um, something oh, that's else huge that's that's huge too i think i mean not to interrupt but that's like i think that's huge because i think when
1: i first started i thought i had that impression too that oh yeah and and now i'm competent. but i continued to receive mentoring not just after i had my bcba but for years afterwards i worked together with Jamelis and Jamelis continued to mentor me for years after i had my bcba and i grew a lot under him and with him and he continued to provide checks and balances on things that I did, but I grew so much under him. But still, my areas of things that I was interested in or things that I did constantly evolved just by virtue of being in public school. So first it was assessment, and then it was play, and then it moved to social skills. And and just because things in public school can move and shift so quickly, um, my areas of interest and in research shifted and moved quickly too. But, but then I have to, to get it. training in that and that it's not – it doesn't just – it's not just, oh, mm-hmm. now you, you're done. It it really
0: was constant mentorship. No, I think that that's, that's a really important piece. And I am, am kind of chuckling to myself because I also was supervised by Jim Ellis and uh, Susan Ainsley as a professor had the opportunity to work and to see a lot of really successful models coming to Hawaii, we have a different system. We have, you know, insurance started much later here. We were the 42nd state. So I started to get more interested in things like public policy and implementation and organizational management. So I also had to seek out additional mentors like Dr. Daniels. Um, But before we end today, you quickly had said some of your interests were assessment play and social skills. You are a co-author of the Socially Savvy book, and I want to give you an opportunity just share like what the book's about you know who it's for and and where it came from like how did you come to seeing that need and then developing that assessment uh
1: so jim and i um uh must be about seven or eight years ago we were getting frustrated with the social skills assessments that were out there we weren't really happy with any of them and and We use the Ables a lot. I love the Ables. I just wasn't really happy with the social skills portion of it or the play portion. Um, So first we kind of went at the play and we used the developmental play assessment from Karen Lifter out at Northeastern. And so we got to know the play, different levels of play from a developmental point of view, which was great because I think sometimes... Um, behavior analysts don't look at development enough when young children so we really got to know uh, very well the developmental stages of play which was very helpful it helps with generalization and then we started looking at the social skills side of it and we were really unhappy with the stuff that was out there so we took we spent we spent a few years taking all we didn't think it would take as many years as it did we took all the social skills checklists that were out there. And we basically compiled them into a list. And then we started taking out things that were duplicates or things that we didn't think were social skills because some of the things are things that were written down or we didn't think were developmentally appropriate. And we also got input from speech and language pathologists, from another special educator. Um, and um, And Jim is also a clinical psychologist. So we spent a lot of time where we spent a lot of time arguing um but we spent a lot of time going through the list and kind of also checking out how typical kids would do on it and when we finished it we these were all the skills we thought that a kid who was doing amazingly well would have you know by the time they went to kindergarten-ish except for that it's really turned out that there are skills on there that even kids in first grade and second grade still need to work on. Or as my brother points out, um, you know, there are are skills on there that some adults need to work on, especially in the self-regulation, because he looked over the list and he's like, you know, I work with people that don't have these skills. So, I mean, it's really, it's amazing how much we expect of children sometimes when adults don't have some of these. When we put it together, we notice that there seem to be seven areas that these skills fell under. And it's useful to think of it in terms of that because I think a lot of parents get the feedback that, oh, your your child's social skills are an area of deficit, their social skills are an area of deficit. But I think it's useful if you kind of parse it out and say, maybe not all their social skills, but let's really parse it down. So we parse it down between um, social play, self-regulation, classroom or group behavior, um, nonverbal uh, language, um, joint attention, and... Trying to, I'm thinking of this off the top of my head, um, seven different areas because, um, because if you really parse it out, there may actually be areas of strength, and oftentimes that is the case. Usually a child who has self-regulation as an issue tends to also have classroom and group behavior as an issue, which they kind of go hand in hand. But what we tended to see is that kids tended to have like two or three areas that were more challenging and the other areas that were less challenging, which helps you narrow down your focus. And we did it because I really do love the ABLE to, we we did it as an ABLE to type graph, which you can do online and makes it easier to then graph it. And then one of the things that was important to me was that it be an automated report because teachers often are overwhelmed and they just, they don't need to write out a whole thing. You can customize it or you can do it online and not have it customized and just hit print. Um, But then the book also has games that's associated with each one, and these are games that we play in our social skills group. So what we do at the beginning of the year is we assess the kids, we line up all the social skills, and then we find areas of commonality. So if there's areas that are challenging for for the kids in certain areas, we circle them, and that's what we create a data sheet on, and that's the area that we're going to work on first. And then we reassess. A month or two later, we again lay it all out on the floor. That's not really a high-tech way to do it, but we lay them all out on the floor. We find again areas of commonality, and then um, and then create a data sheet and go forward. Um, And it's a lot of fun games because it's if we embed it, um, then it's it's much more. We're generalizing the skill. We're working on multiple things, um, and and so everything is aligned. But it's also useful for parents because the parents. um, can see why is this skill important? How do we teach it? And what games you need to play in order to target it? Um, so it's really a curriculum guide. But we also wanted to say what other guides were there out? What other um, things were there out there? So that nobody felt like, oh, I have to get Michelle Garcia Winner, or I have to get the you know the regulation, or I have to get. Um, because we're a public school, we know that teachers have no money, so we tried to find as many things that were cheap or like. If You don't have to feel like you need to buy certain curriculum because we have a firm belief that no curriculum works for 100% of children. It should be like we had two groups running at the same time, and we used the Tobin series. Both groups had four boys and one girl, both groups the same age. One group loved the Tobin series. One group did not connect with it at all. That's fine. So we stopped doing the Tobin series for one group, and we tried something else. And, and that's really the way it should work. It shouldn't work by saying like, well, we bought off this curriculum, so therefore you will use it. And I think that was really important to both me and Jim, that it's not like the school district paid this amount of money for this curriculum, therefore you will use it. The data should always shake it out. And if the data shows that something's working, great. We also try to do as many free things as possible
0: because I, I don't know about you, but we have no money in our budget public schools are not usually known for their abundance of cash, again, really mostly their abundance of creativity. Um, Christine, thank you for, for joining us today and for spending the time talking about um, some of these different topics and passions of yours. I will already send another invite to you because I have a lot of follow-up questions and I want to know more about how people who aren't where you're at can start to, you know, strive for that. So we'll, We'll have those conversations again. So thank you again for joining us today. Oh, sure. Thank you so much. No problem. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can visit www.behaviorbabe.com.